You're very welcome to this week's podcast. It's the first in a series of podcasts on life as it was on the islands off the west coast of Ireland. And this week, the focus is on three islands off the Kerry coast. We start with Beganis Island in Valencia Harbour in southwest Kerry. And there I meet famous Kerry footballer Mick O'Connell. This trip for me now, you know, it is kind of trip back in time, kind of a spiritual journey because my people were here in Bigness ever I suppose as I'll tell you soon from the records when I say ever hundreds and hundreds of years and then it's on to Elon Tannic which is one of the seven hogs between Brandon Head and Kerry Head and there I meet Bob Goodwin a man who built boats all his life the canvas came in rolls and they had to cut it and mark it and sew it, sew it by hand. And um, in the wintertime they would sew it near the fire because it, would be, uh, wouldn't be bit, it wouldn't be very flexible in cold weather. Uh, not as flexible as they would need it anyway. And finally we move to Skellig Michael where I meet archaeologist Michael Gibbons. There's a lovely little hidden jewel here. Once you get through all this complex you're looking straight down on the North Landing and then you just turn the corner and you have this exquisite little almost private oratory just off to the north tiny little one but it's locked so let's get started with mick o'connell and i met mick in knightstown on valencia island in 2003 i'm here on valencia island with mick o'connell and mick we're just going to head across to beganis island the island where the o'connells all your ancestors lived and grew up and before we start, we're here in, in the, uh, I suppose, the store where your boat is. Can you talk to me a little bit about the rowers, for example, that we're going to row this boat over in a minute? Yeah, well, this punt, uh, this small boat, which we call it, is called a punt. She was built by Dan O'Connell of Port McGee way back in the early part of the last century for my father when he was living in Begnes. Beautifully built punt. They don't build them like that anymore. But he uses specifically for making passages from Begnes to, to Valencia. So we'll go across... Now, I'll pull a pair of paddles across with you. As regards bigness and isolation, if you've got two good long oars and two able oarsmen... Like these ones here? These are the ones here. And the, these are all uh, handmade oars? Uh, oh, they're all made handmade out here. But two good men on a, on a, on a boat like that, uh, well able to row, they'd make a passage any day of the year, storm or otherwise. And uh, so that is the... the so they were, they, they were never isolated, so uh, in, the, in, in that, big yeah. storms. Yeah. As you are as bigness, no, no. Even in, unless it is once in the blue moon did you get a, a stink of a storm altogether. They were not. They were well able as boatmen. But uh, that is what we're going to head across in now. But this store here, my father got it when he came across here in 1933. He bought this. Uh, but this was an old lifeboat store. Beautiful store, King Post Roostoff. It was an old lifeboat house away built, built in 1869, as you can see in the But it's been a store in my father's fishing operations for years and years. And you can see it lying around here, old ropes and gear, relics of, of former days, but a haven for, for fishing gear. And the crews, they went to sea from here when my father was fishing the mackerel away back in the 30s. And so on. As we go across the bigness now, we will see some of the places where they did live and where they, they originated and where the fishing was mainly practiced. So I suppose we'd better grab a pair of oars and, and, and head. And the day is lovely for it too. So as we're heading for, towards Beganis Island, 
make it, we're just passing the the Valencia there and the old houses up on the right. Uh, there's, there's the old coast guard station. There was two coast uh, stations here in the end, one here and one in the western end. So they were dotted right around the coast in the British days. So they're just owned by the state, the Irish state now rented out to various people. But uh, we're leaving Hudicar, another place known as the Watch House down here at the foot of the island. There was a Coast Guard Watch House there as well, and it was manned by the Coast Guards as well there. And uh, so they had a big influence around here. Once you're heading towards boat. We see that. Sorry. Sorry. You always see that, isn't it? Okay. You've got a knife in the back of your head. <laughs> Sorry, I should have pointed it out. And you've got Church Island over there on the other side. Church Island is to the east of Bignus. There's a bar where it dries out of low water. My people had that as well. And uh, when the family stood up there, my father's name is Gibbs Sheep. And the other side of the family would have an equal number of sheep in the island. And the same in Lamb's Island at the back. So uh, it was, what I call it, a two and four system. They never physically divided the land. They just had an equal number of stock, each of them. So usually, farmers in those days divide up the land into smaller holdings. That's the way they worked. Yeah. My own grandfather, he died in 1928. He was born in 1850. And so therefore the national school here was only built in 1868. So he cannot have been at any national school, but he used to row across here. He must have been good control of English. He's a row across here every day in his elder years for the paper. And that was how he he, did. he died in 1928, as I said. But he was rowing across, not in this punt, probably another punt, which they had. And my father and uncle were in a ship at the time. They saw him and their son, the man collapsed in the boat. But my grandfather, he was brought to the low class when he died that night. But he was 78 at the time, so it was no bother for him to row across. But, uh, so, everybody did it. That was their way of life. This trip for me now, to, you know, is kind of a trip back in time, kind of a spiritual journey, because my people were here in Bigness ever, I suppose. As I'll tell you soon from the records, when I say ever, hundreds and hundreds of years. So, I suppose I'm the first generation that, that hasn't been living there. And just to a quicker faith that my father and mother and their family transferred over to Valencia in 1933. I was born a couple of years later in the island. My course in life would have been different as well, but I still have a feeling that is my roots are here. But as this harbour here now as we cross over, my father said that this was a mecca for fishing boats in the, in the, in the real mackerel days, before the First World War, during the First World War and right through. Manxmen from the south, from the uh, Arclo, Cape Clear, South Cork Coast, and all congregated here. And uh, in fact, two first cousins of my father, married fishermen, one from Cape Clear and one from Union Hall in the South Cork Coast. I'm sure the match was made here by the fishermen when they came up here. Fishermen they married, they came from this island. Then he gets to Dingle, of course, the, the mackerel fishing, that I might tell you later about was. Because there were two seasons for mackerel fishing. One was the spring fishing, which was way high off the coast, and the other was the, the fall fishing when the fish came close to the coast. And uh, there was a lot of small boats fished across the coast. 
And my father told me from Begnus, our cross, which is a couple of miles up the estuary there, he said he saw the boats coming and nothing remained but flocks of crows, four men and yards they were caught, four old boats going out outside the lighter in Belenshine, mackerel fishing. He said it was, they were so thick. But uh, the bigger boats then were the, the nobbies. My people had a nobby tree built in Peel in the Isle of Man and uh, a crew of about six and uh, very successful. They did well at the fishing, but straight land here now at, at Lube. In here. Third yeah. yeah, we struck shore now for us. This is perfect landing. Six uh, years now, sit down a moment. Sit down there a minute get, uh, I, I just have to put her ashore to get it. So as we're pulling the boat now, uh, or getting the boat up onto the rocks. Well, it's strand, I suppose. We just call it strand. So Mick, we're now on the island and uh, what a, a, a magnificent view all around. It's a beautiful place, I said to you there, I love coming across here, I came across here last Sunday, had a swim there in Travon. That's Travon at the eastern there, it's a nice beach as you'll get anywhere in Ireland, it's never mentioned in blue flag lists or anything like that. And then east of that is, the, is a black rock called Cornavir, the rock of the Carbons. And uh, Cowan Row at the east, it's Church Island off there. But uh, then back here, there are a lot of courses. There's Coast Eden, Coast of Grain. That's Gran is the Irish for, for, for gravel. And the genitive, Coast of Grain. All the place names around here. And uh, I've heard them time after time being mentioned by my fathers and uncles. So uh, it will be a pity if the island is divided here because it would expose Valencia Harbour as well. But I suppose time will take its toll on us. All right. But tell me now, you're, you remember your grandfather and uh, your grandfather's uh, living in the island in, in the house that we'll, we'll go over to shortly. But he was a man, I suppose, who was, um, uh, he was a pilot, wasn't he? He was involved well, in piloting ships then. Well, piloting was big business here in the island. Yeah, they were all together once, but then there was a split. There was another family involved in the, and, they, and they had a split and they had a unique way of, of getting signals because it was the main pilot station one family had uh, a man in the mainland Danny Mort was his name the Mort O'Connors and my father had another because they had a view of the way back way back west of Bay they would see the ships approaching before uh, before they would hear in Beckness Island and uh, I think uh, one one of the signals was to put a shawl on top of first bush and I think uh, Lauder O'Neill my father's thing was to push the, the, the horse cart out in the field from, from its normal position. So it was all held for leather then. First aboard, got the pilot's job and that was it. But there was good money, good money in it, great money in it, I think. Because my father told me when the first ships he piloted in way back in the last century, it was £14 was the fee, which was a colossal sum of the time. And uh, But that was allied to fishing. I saw there was always, they were pretty well, well away here on the island. And, and the piloting itself, it must have been dangerous work. Can you imagine going out in, in rough seas uh, to, to help these uh, bigger ships in, into, uh, into shore? Into well, the, the boarding of the ship would be the most dangerous part of it, I suppose, in a heavy swell, danger of being hit off the side. But they were, they were good boatmen, I suppose, and, and, uh, for that reason. But they know, the, they know the channels very well, right into the harbour. And 
into Carstavin. And there was far more shipping in those times. Of course, there was trading. Then there was the cable ships. It's a big part of the business because Valencia being the terminal of the transatlantic cables, that was a big part of the business. The cable ships, they, they serviced all the cables, the underwater cables. And in 2002, I visited Bob Goodwin on Elon Tannig, where we met at the old boathouse. We're at the back of uh, the, the Goodwin house here on the island. And you were telling me that this this uh, is the, the the remains now of what was the the uh, where the boats were built. Yeah, that's right. I remember it uh, when it was in, in good shape. Now it's only a, only a ruin. Can, only, can you describe to me wooden, what... It was a wooden structure except uh, the western wall is stone built as you can see but all that remained was timber, wrecked timber I presume and of course that's timber is there no more now but uh, it's all corroded or burned or whatever and uh, there were two doors in it, one in each end I remember but I don't remember my grandfather, he was dead before I was born but he used to get good demand for them because they were um, they were in, um, in big demand at the time because the mackerel fishing was in full swing uh, around the coast and uh, mackerel were being exported from Phoenix and American ships. In fact, they were the biggest ships that were coming into Phoenix in those days. There were 8,000 tonners. Of course, they would be light, they wouldn't be very deep. But um, eventually the Americans put a tariff on it and that stopped, put a full stop to it. And then that fishing got great employment because they used to have to make the barrels, copers would make the barrels to, and the women would go to fish and uh, ship them and uh, pack them into barrels, salt it, and uh, it gave a lot of employment. I'm sure it was badly missed when it uh, came to finish. What was your grandfather's name? John Goodwin. And so did John make boats then for uh, a lot of the local uh, fishing families? Yes, he did. And he also made them for people in the west of Dingle. I remember hearing my father saying about one day they delivered one back to Smervik Harbour. They sailed back and rowing and sailing. They made a good time and uh, delivered to whoever, somebody in Smervik Harbour anyway. And uh, yes, he built them for others as well. Oh, where did he learn his craft? A uh, man that lived in Ocashla, two miles from Castle Gregory, came out and showed him how to build them. I heard he, a man called Hartney, and uh, they say he came from Clare, and uh, he showed him how to build them. Now, uh, could you describe to me what, first of all, was it called a canoe or a, a vogue or a, a, a curragh? What, what was it called back here? They were always called canoes locally. It was only when people started going up to Galway to regattas, they started calling them Corrucks and Navogues and the from the West of England and the Irish-speaking place. I forgot to mention that my grandfather's brother built them also in his house. He had a shed in near the pier. And what was his name? His name was Frank. He spent many years at sea in sailing ships, or quite a few anyway. And um, when he retired, he built a house near the pier and he used to build, he used to build sailing boats as well as uh, Navogues. Did any of those boats survive? Uh, that uh, that uh, Did they have a long lifespan? Well, they had a long lifespan because they, mind, they took great care of them. But uh, none of them would be there now because they weren't using copper nails at the time either and the nails would have corroded long ago. What kind of materials did he use? They would use oak ribs, I presume, and white deal and the uh, gunnels and um, oak ribs, uh, oak... Um, Ash, I suppose, for the knees, any part that needed that would bend on it, natural bend, like a like a hurley, would uh, that would be ash or elm. Any of the two would be all right. The canvas came in rolls, and they had to cut it and mark it and sew it, sew it by yeah. hand. 
and um, in the winter time they would certainly need the fire because it would be uh, wouldn't be bit, it wouldn't be very flexible in cold weather, uh, not as flexible as they would need it anyway. But um, it must have been a slow job sewing it because in my time it was all sewn by machine. But and then stick it on with boiled tar. The tar had to be boiled for a number of hours before it would become until it becomes really tacky to stick it so the canvas would stick onto the lats. And then that was the last job to be done, and a messy job it is. And so a lot of this work would have been carried out by the women, rather, the, 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 ca- the sewing the canvas together, would it? Or? Oh no, the man who built the canoe did the sew, the sew the canvas as well. Could you describe to me the way that the fishing was carried on? I would say three would go out and then go out and then go out, because if there were four there would be very little room for the, for the, for the nets. And there were cotton nets in those days that would be fairly heavy when they were wet. Uh, well, I would say three men in each uh, Nevog. Um, it was dangerous work as well because I had no forecast either in those days. And I remember often had my father saying they were fishing from Coos, Brandon Creek. And if the swell lifted while they were out, they couldn't get back in. It's so narrow. Yeah. And they used to have to go either to Brandon or Bally David. I'm sure they often took a chance going in there in the dark. They wouldn't really know how bad it was. Uh, what would have happened to it then when it, it reached the uh, the pier? I expect they would have to go to all the fish and salt them, pack them into barrels, and uh, that gave a lot of work, got a lot of employment. Who came and collected the fish from from the Maharis in those days? Well, I, th- I think the most of the remarkable fishing was done from Brandon. Maybe they all landed them at the one at the one point, and uh, I don't know. I know they were sent to Phoenix by train. There was a train from Castle Gregory in those days. They probably brought them by horse and cart to start as the station in Castle Gregory and then from there to Phoenix yeah. for shipment to the U.S. Hmm. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Uh, it was great, great going, wasn't it? Uh, so the, the, the other activity that your father was involved in uh, and your grandfather... Uh, was piloting boats in yeah, into, right. into Phoenix. So, c- c- could you explain how, how that happened? Oh, well, I'll start with the beginning. It was yeah. all sailing ships that were coming in the o- originally when my grandfather started piloting. And uh, they would be looking out for them for several days because they were usually late arriving anyway. Between, they might have to come around Cape Horn sometimes if they were coming from the east or western part of the States and uh, could be delayed for days or maybe weeks then if they happen to run into the doldrums coming up off Brazil so they could be be camped for several days again so nobody knew when they would arrive but eventually they would see the sail on the horizon and off they would go and uh, there would be several pilots out waiting for the same ship of course and it was a case of first come first served Who was he in competition with? Well there were other local pilots as well and there were pilots in Phoenix also but uh, they would, Phoenix pilots would also be out. They could go out by night without anybody seeing them. So it, it was hard earned money. 
so uh, d d you had to be at the top of your your uh, your game really uh, you had to be very fit i'm sure uh, oh, to to get out there oh definitely and if you waited on land usually in good weather if you waited on land at you see the ship you were already too late yeah if you weren't already out there and usually the ships would come up straight for after passing the Tirik, they would head for the next lighthouse which is loop head and they would stay out there usually until daylight because they didn't have the good navigational equipment they've got nowadays or maybe not even a church maybe and so they would stay outside and uh, they usually wanted the anxious to get the pilot before they're coming outside the outside the entrance to the bay as far out as possible in fact so sailing or these boats were rowed out i mean quite a distance uh, when they reached the ship uh, would they go on board or would they sail in front of the would they bring was it a question of rowing back in all the distance again uh, it would depend the pilot would go on board straight away as soon as they come near the ship and if there was sometimes they would get a tow at half speed the ship full speed would be too fast a short half speed to part of the way or if the weather was really bad they would lift the nave of the canoe up clear the water um, on the ship's side and where they go if they were going to anchor they would come home from anchorage probably yeah and uh, anyway it was a night and day it was it was dangerous work no forecasters no, no use their own judgment what kind of payment did the they get payment and i see them saying that the, the, the biggest ships are got the six thousand tonners from south america they used to make 20 pounds in and out which was an awful lot of money in those days we've no idea now what it would uh, uh um, because it was so hard to come by money anyway at that time so um what smaller ships of course would make much less there were other plenty of other smaller ships coming as well you know cargoes of timber and uh, feeding stuff and whatever so the, it would vary, depending on the size of the ship. My final destination this week is to Skellig Michael. And in 2004, I met archaeologist Michael Gibbons. Look at this wonderful oratory here. This is where we walked through into the oratory. And, you got and again, you step up and it's huge inside. Yes, it is. And it's this sort of upturned, boat-shaped type oratory, that gallerist type. And you're looking across this window looking out onto the monks graveyard we've oh, got this stunning image of these beautiful latin crosses some fading decoration now and looking across onto all different, Vig, all different all different crosses and looking across onto uh looking north onto uh, belench island we're looking straight across and the mountains knock a dubber behind it and but the wonderful image there of Skellig Vig, there were all the gannets wheeling around us. So it's really wonderful. Of course, you would have layers of, of different uh, ages here. Uh, yeah, most, know, most of what we're looking at now is at the high point of the monastery, 10th century probably. But look at this wonderful cross here. You can see how much debris there had been here, though. You can see the line of lichen here. So this had filled in gradually over the years with, with debris, which have been cleared away during the conservation works. And the white quartz, this is a feature you have in many early Christian sites. The use of quartz is a sign, a Christian sign of hope, of course. There's a lovely little hidden jewel here. Once you go through all this complex, you're looking straight down on the north landing. And then you just turn the corner and you have this exquisite little, almost private oratory. Just off to the north, tiny little one, but it's liacht. Our altar and, and will, cross will we make our way over and have a quick look at it? Yes. Now we're just over the oratory. 
Looking down at it. Looking down at it. It's, in, it's got its own little terrace here. And if you look on the far side, which we've done from the boat coming in, there's an enormous uh, effort went into building this incredible walling to support this whole structure. And you come to it then, it's just this exquisite, tiny little church site, you know, three meters across inside. Um, orientated east-west, doorway in the west here, in its own little micro-environment, this little white quartz-topped tomb here. Some wonderful paving all around it, and a little beautiful cross in the corner, little cell beside it, and just looking out, perched like an eerie, out looking down on the ocean. So a little private space within an exceptional monastery here. So, so this could be a private chapel, you know. And so much of the, the, the praying and the and the masses that we would have gone on here would have been... Well, probably in the main oratories, but this, we're not sure how these related to one another, whether it was a particular monk from a noble family that came and built his own private chapel. Of course, people came uh, late in life, having spent their lifetime as warlords and Gaelic chiefs, and then in, being elbowed out of power. One of the functions of an early monastery, for example, was a... It was like an old folks' home for clapped-out old chiefs, elbowed out of power by younger, more ambitious sons who sort of let right dad stayed in the place too long. Out you go. So this was a very fluid world. So this this monastery was operating within the very dynamic political world of tribal warfare and tribal change and so on. But this monastery persisted. It was a really, really significant one. And like and the pilgrimage tradition too. This is one of our holy mountains, Skellig. I like to think of it as a mountain in the sea as opposed to an island in the sea. So how long did the monks remain here? Well, we know it was gradually abandoned from around 1100 onwards. So it, uh, from that period on, there were no longer permanent ocu occupation here. The medieval church was built later, so it was still seen as a very strategically important status place to come and to have a church. So um, there was a gap of how many years? Several centuries. Well, from the 12th century onwards, it was probably abandoned as a permanent residence. They may have came out here seasonally for the, for the winter or the summer months. And then pilgrims coming on after the Reformation, pilgrimage was one of the, under the penal laws, one of the things that was banned under the penal laws because you got large amounts of people together to, together in an excited emotional state, an often drunken state. So pilgrimage persisted despite all the anti-Catholic rules and regulations and, uh, uh, and within a very rural, tra or rural tradition, pilgrimage surviving as an extraordinary part of ordinary people's everyday life. Well, this great, amazing view now. Well, we're looking down at these clahans from the back now. And so, uh, if you can see climb, this, climb the, the steepness of this shelf here. So they had to create this whole terrace here. Yeah. But it was very sheltered, as you can see. So even in Gale, this was an exceptionally well-chosen site. But I'd love to have been the first monk out here to the site who imagined this place, because this he had to conceive of this in its developed form in order to convince anyone to come out, lads. Can you imagine saying, I found this wonderful place. Come out, <laughs> they come out to spire in the Atlantic. You must be joking. So this was this whole monastic site had to be developed in someone's head who saw a vision of it, how it might develop over the years. So these geniuses, whoever this man was, and it was probably one man who said, "Right, lads, we're heading west to this this spire in the ocean." Now we made our way across to what is definitely one of the dangerous parts of the climb to reach the summit. So we've headed over towards the south peak now and we've come along a very dangerous, very steep piece of the rock and we're we're still climbing, we have another bit to go. Yeah, we're, we're on the south peak which has got its own separate monastic site, most of which has crumbled away. 
and exceptionally dangerous so not for the faint-hearted or someone who hasn't rock climbed before so it's really out of bounds for the general public so but why, why did the monks come over here in such a <laughs> such a, a well, desolated part of the whole well having thing. established their wonderful monastery on the main one that wasn't hard enough obviously so then this is an extreme following the logic of going to the even higher more dangerous more difficult they built this additional cell and oratory high up on the peak here with a series of amazing turrets and so if you watch people now just ahead of us uh, this group of archaeologists we're working our way up and they are going through the eye of the needle it was one of the famous pilgrimage sites you see the overhanging rock yeah we're going to go through that shortly through that yeah. and you've got people with fo- hand and footholds cut by the monks up and you lean back on it so quite extraordinary and this lovely little ter- bit of terracing that's been built here to facilitate it so and that brings us up on another ledge and then as we go on it gets more and more um challenging as shall i say as we go up so this is uh so you, would, a, you wouldn't want to look behind you, would you? <laughs> no, that's, the, that's down on the, the lighthouse there. Section. So this is really the extremes of aestheticism you're looking at here. Exceptional place. But again, once you get acclimated to it, then this becomes routine. You know, the monks would have ran up and down this without even noticing My God. the climb. Okay, so we, we won't run up and down. We'll just take <laughs> step by step here. And you see the way it, the grooves are cutting into the rocks uh, for footholds? For these are hand and footholds. As you can see, they're quite a distance apart. So these weren't small little fellas. These were quite big stumps of monks that were climbing here. Well, Michael, we're halfway there and uh, it's still looking fairly steep ahead of us. But just look behind. I, I just spotted one of these cells right out in the edge of the rock. Yeah, it's probably a little prayer cell. Someone moved out onto an extraordinary structure. You have this little chasm to get across and scramble out. And as we go up here, you'll see little bits of terracing here and there as we go up. So this whole the mountain here we're on now has all been again just literally tucked and shaped and altered very subtly I mean if you weren't used to this you wouldn't think there was any the hand of man touched it but it's just it gets even more extraordinary and more arduous as you climb up here so it's uh it's one we've just come through the eye of the needle and heading on up that was one of the most awkward that's a sort of difficult spot for people it's more mentally difficult than physically difficult to get through that was was we have this 130 meter wall of rock ahead of us to go climb well, I'm not looking forward to it, but we'll do. <laughs> we'll keep going. Well, there's loads of handholds. You just have to uh, look, watch for them, and relax, and not take a big step. Well, we're we've come to another stage now, Michael. Can you describe where we are now? We're about a, uh, almost three quarters of the way up now. We've hit um, one of these amazing garden terraces here. So this uh, is where they would have had maybe. their vegetables and yeah, a little herb garden, maybe. Yeah. And uh, you can see the walling of it. It's just on the rock. And you can see if we look across that cliff face there, where they built this other one to the west of us here. I mean, the men who d- built this, look at this for structure here. It's again, it's a sort of a sinuous terrace that comes down from close to the summit and winds out onto this ledge out here. And again, we're more rock cut steps ahead of us. And the of last course, push up here. <laughs> the last the last phase and of course we're we're, we're blessed with the weather it, the weather stunning, is yeah. really good to us well today. on a wet day this would be you know this Impossible. is suicide sort of uh, stuff here it's very exceptionally dangerous because once the lichen gets wet you know you can slip and fall here so there's a major danger over this whole feet this whole trip yeah. if you're not uh, used to rock climbing and so on Thank you.
Now we've come to another stage of the climb. So we've come up and then there's a little uh, a terrace on the east slope here, close to the summit. Again with a series of, of features on it. One is the remains of a, a small tiny oratory, very much like the last one we saw on the north side. A lot of this has fallen away with erosion over the years. And then there's a terrace running out. So you have also have a holy water font, or a holy water, a catcher for water rather, down here. And the remains of a little yacht. And during the conservation work here, they found an early cross slab. So this was a monastic oratory. Right and, on uh, the edge of the cliff. It's and just looking across, look at the panorama we have here now onto the uh, the main monastery, if you like, with the Clohans beehives. You can see how they were called beehive huts. Just the shape, the forms of them, now which were stage. way above them. And looking across this huge chasm between us and, and this glorious place. Yeah. Exceptionally beautiful. And so. one of the routes to it here, yeah. if you can see. Okay, I'm fine with this. When we reach the top, yeah. what are we going to see? We're on the pinnacle of the Skelligs with this vast panorama of ocean, land and sea. But we're looking across on the main monastery so it's, we're in the heavens come to carry and hopefully we'll get down over the heavens well we got there uh, right to the very top and it's very breezy here it really is but look at the, this view I mean it's just incredible all around us well of course one of the one of the Christian themes I suppose is going to the heavens to commune with your gods of course Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai to get his tablets, the instructions that laid out the whole philosophy of, for life for the Jewish people and later the Christian people as we copy them. So building a monastery in the high places, you're in commune with those heavenly gods. You're actually in that in-between liminal zone between heaven and earth. And this is the greatest example anywhere, probably in Europe, where you've got a Christian mount, sanctified mount in the sky, surrounded by the vast oceans. And this is the extraordinary place that the monks came to in the early centuries and pilgrims came up until the last century coming out in their boats climbing up this incredible difficult route we came up here and then climbing out on this rock to see this large slab that you stand right out on the end of that point there which was lost in the storm it blew away but Desavelle from Lynch Island recorded it and Paddy Paddy O'Leary and Lee Snodgrass were the first surveyors who surveyed this about 20 years ago so it's an amazing amazing place up here we've come to the end of this week's podcast and i hope you enjoyed listening to the stories of those told living on the islands off the Kerry coast and next week we're going to travel to county clare where i will visit scattery island and the clare islands and i look forward very much to bringing you that podcast next week but in the meantime if you would like to download any of the full-length interviews uh, that you've been listening to. They're available on irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Maurice O'Keefe and thank you for listening.